0: Your eyes on the times, you walk ready to speak up But with so many problems, you're exhausted trying to keep up
1: This is the Church Politics Podcast Where you can get political commentary from a biblical worldview We're not trying to be conservative or progressive We're trying to be Christian in the public square And I'm black as heaven, I'm made in God's image Nobody can change my settings Hey man, cut off my knees and put an end to my search It's easy to sell your soul when you don't know what it's worth with you, know good, and camp. You're listening to the Ann Campaigns Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibbony, A.K.A. Bishop Cooper's grandson and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line, my play cousin, the Right Reverend Christopher Butler. Chris, how is everything in Chicago? I know it's been a rough time sports-wise. We won't get into that, but how you been
0: doing otherwise? <laughs> yeah, let's not get into the sports, especially for a Sox fan. In addition, but it's exciting times in Chicago. You know, we had Congressman Jordan here having a hearing on violence. We have a process downtown today about spending $29 million on housing immigrants. So, yeah, you know, it's a very exciting time.
1: Yeah, it sounds like it. Something I saw on the news and I wanted to run it by you really surprised me. It may have bigger implications for a particular movement. According to The New York Times, Governor Gavin Newsom, who's the governor of California, who is obviously positioning himself to run for president uh, either this time, if somehow Biden doesn't run, which is probably unlikely, or next time around, 2028, is definitely kind of posturing for that. But it was interesting because he vetoed a bill that would instruct judges presiding over custody battles in the state of California to take into consideration a parent's support for a child's gender identity when making custody and visitation decisions. So basically, under and this was passed sweepingly by the California legislature, Newsom vetoes a bill, which would basically say if someone is in a a custody battle and one parent does not affirm the child's gender identity, that could be counted against that particular parent. He ends up vetoing that. And that just caught me by surprise. And, And when he did it, this is what he said. He said he vetoed it. He said he had a deep commitment to advancing transgender rights. He urged caution about making legal standards in prescriptive terms that single out one characteristic. So that's what he said. He he, he wanted to to give them some caution, and caution is not really something that we've seen much of from the transgender movement. I wouldn't say that it's caution has been you know something that it's been marked by, and that may be why it may be losing some momentum. But I just wanted to see what your thoughts were in general about that veto and what the implications of it might be.
0: I think that Gavin Newsom is definitely a guy who has his testers out and thinking about running for president of the United States. And when I saw that he vetoed that bill, it made me think about that morning consult poll that showed that voters are actually looking at the Democratic Party as more extreme right now than the Republican Party. And a lot of Democrats are waving that off. But I felt like that's one of those things where I see Gavin Newsom, not that this is a person who I believe in very deeply, but he seems really savvy. I think this might be a, like him being like an early adapter to some realities that you and I have talked about a lot on this podcast, and that is beginning to show up in more kind of like mainstream places and polling and that type of thing. There's a 10 point gap between folks who are saying that the Democratic Party is more extreme by 10 points. And a lot of Democrats will wave that off, but I think savvy folks who can read a poll will start to try to pull back in some ways.
1: That poll caught me off guard a little bit. I mean, you're you're basically saying that the Democratic Party is more extreme than the Republicans who are really being led by Trump right now, right? Yeah. That's saying a lot. That's a lot of lost ground for Democrats. And you're right, as you look around social media and as you watch some of the commentary from talking heads on the Democratic side. Not everybody is coping with that well. I think there's some denial yeah. uh, about these polls. Nobody wants to listen to polls anymore. And both sides do that. You know, when a, a poll is bad, it's meaningless and, and all that other stuff. But to not take heed to this particular poll, I think, is irresponsible. Yeah, You have to look at this and say something's going on. And I think this is one of those places where you can say, OK, maybe we've allowed the far left to go too far. Yeah maybe we need to say hold up veto a few things and say this needs to slow down because it's just not making sense to a lot of Americans and and people know our stance we we think everybody should be shown love mm-hmm. parents who have to go through this with a child i can only imagine how tough that is and different parents show love in different ways uh, we've talked about you know we think you know self perception is not necessarily truth but i'm sure it's not an easy thing to do yeah however i think to put this into a decision about custody and to count it against the parent that says, hey, this kid is what the you know birth certificate said it was from the beginning, I think is is going too far. Even for most people who would say, hey, it is the it is the parents right to make that decision to affirm it or not. This is going a little too far. And I think. That's where you're getting the pushback. Yeah,
0: for sure. I, I don't think, you know, and again, I don't know how many times we'll hear me use these words on the podcast, but I'm actually very much in agreement with Governor Newsom's rationale on the veto. Because he, he talked about basically it's, it's kind of a mistake for a legislature to be that directive when it comes to how judges do their craft, right? Like there are there's much already in the law that says that judges should be taken into account the well-being of a child in this kind of a custody case. And so, if this gender identity thing is a part of that, there's already room for judges to factor that in as they make their decision. But to be that directive in terms of how judges are going to adjudicate in a particular situation might be coming over a line that you might regret. And that's one of the things I think people are really seeing when you think about the party being too extreme. When when you keep doing these things, you, you forget about the fact that your group is not always going to be in power. And you don't want to set all these types of precedents right. because you got to think about when your group is out of power. And do you want the other side doing these types of things?
1: And that very well could have been his motivation. Again, I'm not a huge fan of Gavin Newsom. I think he's kind of, he is what the moment calls for. Because the thing about California is that it's run by Democrats. He saw this coming. He knew all the, the support was there. He could have indicated that he was going to it didn't seem like they knew he was going to veto it. It seems like, hey, I'm looking around. I'm testing the wind, you know, kind of putting my finger in the air. And this doesn't look good. Let me come up with some pretext to why I need to I need to shoot this down. Because he certainly could have communicated it. I mean, Lori Wilson, who's the assembly woman who actually presented it, Her one of the things that happened was when her testimony or when she was talking about the bill and it went online, people were just like, "This doesn't make any sense." Like she was saying stuff like, "The parent's job is to affirm the kids and what they do, regardless of what it is." The parent's job is to affirm, and I think she just said things that to your normie, what they're calling normie Americans was just like, "No, that's that's actually not what parents do." Uh, It's it's a little, it's a little more complicated. Yeah, and I
0: I definitely want to be clear that I'm I'm agreeing with Gavin Newsom's words. I'd be hard pressed yeah. to no, think that it. these are deeply held beliefs because I don't think I've heard him talk like that in a lot of different environments. But what he did come up with to say is actually something that makes sense.
1: No, it was. It was something that made sense. What what his real motives were, we don't know. And we don't want to impute him when we don't exactly know. But we can look at the history of what he's done, what he said, how he operates and, and make some guesses. So interesting. Y'all should look it up. There's a a decent article in the New York Times about that. But as I said before, Chris, it's something that certainly caught me by surprise because I didn't expect as I was hearing about because there was a lot made of this before it it went to him. Mm -hmm. And as I was hearing about it, I thought it was a done deal. It seems like some of his uh, colleagues in the Democratic Party also thought it was a done deal but not so fast. So we'll see what happens with that. And he did a lot of other things. I mean, we could have made this whole show about what he vetoed and what he went along with, because he actually vetoed some stuff that had to do with labor. Labor unions were not happy about that. I wouldn't say they threatened him, but they basically told him to square up because we have a problem with, with what happened. So we could get into that too. But before we really get deep into this particular episode, I want to give a shout out to all the patrons and supporters of the AND campaign and for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. We want to be on this podcast and we want to always be as honest as possible. The day that we start being overly political, overly partisan, or overly politically correct is the day that this this needs to end. Mm -hmm. But we can't have a podcast like that if we don't have supporters who are, who are independent and in helping us keep this going. So we need you guys to support us. If you do want to become a supporter, you can go to patreon.com slash church politics. You can give $5. You can give $2,000 a month. It all helps us keep this going because there's not a lot of commentary like this. And that's for a reason, right? We're not going to get any big corporate sponsors and we're not looking for any big corporate sponsors, but we do need you to to help us out, all right? If you're watching on YouTube, make sure that you like and subscribe. Make sure that you share this with people around you. The right, the way that the Church Politics Podcast spreads, which we have episodes where there's 30,000 listeners and it's really great. But all this has come through word of mouth folks in the church who love what we're doing. So even if you don't have money to give, if you do, please help. If not, make sure you just spread the word to people in your church, people that you go to school with or whatever. All right. So before we get into it, you know what we do. Grab your Bible. Get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but like a Christian. We'll be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. All right, Chris, we are going to start with some scripture. All right. And here we go. None of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute, and none of the sons of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. You shall not bring the fee of a prostitute or the wages of a dog into the house of the Lord your God in payment for any vow, for both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 17 through 18. Let's go to the New Testament. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to come to his home for lunch, and Jesus accepted the invitation. As they sat down to eat, a woman of the streets, a prostitute, heard he was there and brought in an exquisite flask filled with expensive perfume. Going in, she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping with her tears falling upon his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair and kissed them and poured the perfume on them. When Jesus's host, the Pharisee, saw what was happening and who the woman was, he said to himself, this proves that Jesus is no prophet. For if God had really sent him, he would know what kind of woman this one is. Luke 7, verses 36 through 38. Now, when we go down to verse 47, Jesus says this. Therefore, her sins and they are many. Are forgiven, for she loved me much. Chris, the Bible has a way of bringing us into attention, and the ANN campaign talks about these tensions quite a bit, because it's, it clearly says in the Bible that prostitution is a wicked thing, and then in the Gospel we see Jesus showing love and blessing a prostitute. But one thing I think we have to notice is that he does so without trivializing or justifying prostitution. He loves her without euphemizing the behavior or the industry. He doesn't try to candy coat her degrading situation. This is how we should love. And it's how we should hope to be loved in our brokenness. It's a greater form of love than blanket affirmation. Chris, when I was in high school, I read a few books by the author Iceberg Slim, The Naked Soul of Iceberg Slim, Airtight Willie, Trick Baby, and so on. He was a famous pimp from Chicago who brought readers into the world of prostitution through his novels. His writing was intriguing to me. And if you listen to hip hop, you know that some rappers and others have used his books to kind of glorify pimping. Although I don't think that was necessarily his intention from what I understand and listening to interviews that that he did. Now, I confess also that there was a time in my life, Chris, when I went to strip clubs. Yeah, I I do have a testimony. It's not something I'm I'm proud of. But in Atlanta culture, it was kind of branded as harmless fun. Now, I stopped going to the strip club when the woman who would become my wife shared a story with me about a sister who had been Really manipulated into becoming a stripper, and it exposed the connection between sex trafficking and the strip club. And I had completely been unaware of that connection. I had been in a situation where I did honestly see it as as harmless fun, even though from my upbringing and knowing the word, I should have known better than that. I say this to say, Chris, that strip clubs are not harmless, and nothing about prostitution is fun or harmless and i'm not saying those two are necessarily the same all right i don't have the history to condemn anyone for any of that but i do want you to know that words narratives and culture can blind us to wickedness that's the message that i'm trying to bring forth right now all right now julie bendel who is a journalist a feminist a lesbian who who I found to be thoughtful and intellectually honest wrote an article, Chris, in unheard entitled legal prostitution is a gift to pimps. And here's what she says in the article, Chris, in countries such as Germany, Holland, and Switzerland, where all aspects of prostitution are perfectly legal, the women are marketed as merchandise, the sex buyers viewed as clients and the pimps, merely managers at the heart of the project to sanitize the sex trade is the language used to describe it in the 70s carol lee an advocate for blanket uh, legalization coined the term sex work she did this to suggest that prostitution is a job like any other sex work as we see sometimes said sex work is work you see if prostitution is simply a job Then how can it be abuse? If it is merely labor, how can it be detrimental to wider society? This is the question that Bendel is asking. She goes on to say that no other job on Earth exposes the so-called workers to such extreme violence, abuse and degradation. One study found that more than 60 percent of prostitutes had suffered a traumatic brain injury. The problem extends far beyond Europe, though. The picture is just as horrific in Nevada, the only state in the U.S. where brothels are legal. She said that she visited a number of them and the conditions inside are nothing like the glamorous images that are illustrated on their websites. Many women both live and prostitute in a single room where pornography plays on loop. They are not allowed any of their own personal possessions on display and they are only allowed to leave the brothels when they are chaperoned by the assistant pimp she goes on to say that those who advocate for the legalization of prostitution claim it makes it safer for women those in favor of decriminalization including many liberals and and some feminists argue sex workers can be protected by unions and health and safety measures but prostitution is inherently abusive. There is no way to make it safe. Under the regulations, women are inspected, not protected. Sex trafficking and organized crime have actually increased in many countries that have legalized prostitution. Chris, some may disagree with with what I'm about to say, but it's a statement I think I have to make. I don't think everyone who advocates for the legalization of prostitution uh, or calls it sex work, I don't think all those people are malicious and evil. I believe that many think they are liberating women. I think some of them think they are doing a good thing. Now, I obviously think they're wrong. Also, that doesn't mean that evil isn't lurking behind the scenes, that evil isn't at work in the false narratives and in the heart of these pimps, too. But again, I don't think everyone necessarily has bad intentions, but bad intentions are never prevent there from being evil in our midst. And, And actually bad good intentions can further evil. It's not just about the intentions. It's about the truth behind what's going on. Now, as Christians, we should know that redemption comes through the blood of Christ from his grace through faith. But some in the world think we can remove spiritual, emotional and physical consequences by removing stigma. If we can eliminate stigma, we can eliminate shame and the prostitute won't be made to feel bad and then everything will be fine. We think if we change the terminology, we can change the nature of the thing. But all we're really doing is creating blindness the same blindness i had when i went walked into the strip club and thought it was harmless the consequences the sickness and the indignity remain the effort to legalize prostitution demonstrates in my opinion chris a lack of moral knowledge a lack of moral imagination for what these women can become and what their lives are like and it lacks a true understanding of human dignity. Rarely in a democracy do we tell people what they can do to or with themselves. Only in extreme cases, when certain behavior is so destructive and subject to exploitation, do we restrict the individual's ability to engage. This is one of those rare cases, Chris. You don't want something like prostitution to become a legal industry because it sends the wrong message and only increases... The destructive impact. Now, I'm not going to pretend, Chris, that creating policy in this regard is easy. Do we prosecute the women or just the men that are pimping and soliciting them? And it's not always women either. Right. There's there's men that are in prostitution as well. But I just want to get your thoughts on the legalization of prostitution and how the wording of that can be harmful, even if it seems to kind of euphemize the issue.
0: Yeah, I mean, I. I think it's, you know, one, it's a really good article. I think folks should go check it out. It's an important question to discuss in our society because I certainly think that it is not helpful to kind of push prostitution, kind of sweep it under the rug, push it out of the kind of like mainstream, leave it undiscussed and unattended to because as you have laid out well, there are a lot of people involved with prostitution those who are actually being prostituted, as you said, the the pimp, the consumer, all these folks, this is part of our society, so to leave it undiscussed is, is difficult. Also, I think it is important, as you said, to address the issue with a fair amount of compassion, because this is something that some people, a lot of women, turn to Maybe undiscerningly, but turn to in order to you know make money, make ends meet. But I think that that issue of discernment is so key here because you have to be able to separate out a few things. Number one, I think this is where the church just has to I hate to use this phrase, but has to hold the line on this issue, and and not even hold the line. I think we have to advance the line because I I, I think that Justin, I talk about this a lot in my broader ministry. Part of why I'm in the and campaign, because I think if there are two areas where the church is just completely under one is politics, the other is sex. And we don't talk about it. We don't really train our children. We don't build out in the church a theological framework, a sort of hermeneutic for sex. And, and so much of culture just takes sex and presents it as a merely physical interaction which I don't think that's the biblical view of sex. And I think that much of the damage that is done when there is this so-called sex work, sex engagement, that that whole sort of like broader culture of, of sex engagement has to do with the fact that every time somebody's engaging in a sex act, they're engaging in something that is much more than just a physical engagement. But we don't teach that Enough in the churches, we don't talk about sex. And so we churn out Christians who have a severely underdeveloped framework when it comes to sex and sexuality in general. And so we, we've got to do better in that place. The second place of discernment then is on the, the policy side where I'm always engaging or encouraging people on issues like this. We've talked about it on the podcast with, with, uh, with drug legalization. That you have to think through from a policy perspective three very different sort of policy strategies. One is decriminalization. This is the idea that there are things that people do that are unhelpful to society, unhelpful to individuals, but are primarily the outcome of some other brokenness, pain, disadvantage in their life. And so we don't want to criminalize that behavior, right? We don't want to encourage it. But we don't want to throw folks in jail because they engage with it. Because if you're engaging in this behavior, it's not helpful to society, it's not helpful to you. But if you're engaging in this behavior, we can almost, with very good accuracy, assume that you are facing some other difficulty in your life. And so the goal would be then to help you deal with those other difficulties and then pull you out of that unhelpful behavior. That's decriminalization. Then there's a world of legalization where you have activities that are currently against the law. And they may not be the most helpful, but they are not particularly harmful in society. And so we want to take those things from being illegal and make them legal. To me, you don't do that sort of legalization with things that are actively harmful to people and to society. You do that with things that are, it's on the the other side of the line in terms of what is technically legal, but these are things that generally don't have a massively negative impact on society. So we want to take that from illegal and make it legal. Then there's a category where I think this falls into it when you really look at it that I call the policy strategy of commercialization. That is when you have an industry that is illegal and people are already making money off of it. And there are folks with a policy agenda to pull that activity out of the so-called black market, bring it into the traditional economy, which makes it easier for folks to make money off of it. And it really does nothing to impact how the behavior is impacting society, you can usually assume, this is why I'm usually against it, that when you take behavior that is in the black market and pull it into the regular economy, you're going to expand the negative impacts, Uh, whatever negative impacts that that particular behavior is having on society, you're going to expand those negative impacts if you pull it into the commercial space because now you're making it much easier for people who have a primary interest in making money to come in and begin to engage in that practice above board. And so when you think about choosing a policy strategy, so let's say you're a person, you really, really care. Um, You have a heart for people who are in sex trafficking, who have been caught up in the world of prostitution. You hate the way that they have to live and hate to see women come from you know, these difficult circumstances turn to prostitution, then get sucked deeper into sort of darkness because now they're criminalized. And if that's your heart, I would say maybe decriminalization is a better strategy than commercialization, because you really don't change much about the negative impacts when you just commercialize. You and you I think you definitely run the risk of expanding those negative impacts. So I'm probably, you know, hopefully people listening to the Church Politics Podcast don't don't mind if we get too, a little bit wonky here. But I think these policy strategies are very important for us to be thinking about in a discerning way. When we're trying to come up with a policy strategy to help people, you have to really make sure that the strategy that you're advocating is actually going to help the people that you're trying to help.
1: And that's, that's great. The words that are being used, prostitution prostitute sex, sex worker, prostitution sex work. How does that, I mean, biblically, you know, how, or just, you know, in our thinking, how can that hurt us by kind of using euphemism when we really should just be dealing with the how negative and, and degrading the situation
0: is? Yeah, I think that that's part of the policy strategy and it's part of the discipleship, right? So I think a lot of Christians adopt that language because the church didn't give them language, right? Like how often... Do we open the text in a Bible study or even on a Sunday morning and read the passages that you read this morning and talk about the fact that the Bible does have something to say about prostitution? Acknowledge the fact that prostitution and prostitutes exist in the culture and there is a biblical way to think about it. I think that we should be using biblical language. I I find it hard sometimes to lay it all at the feet of the rank and file Christian for not using that language or for adopting this this pseudo-language because we haven't really firmly given folks' language, right? And, and when we do talk about sexuality, we're only talking about how bad fornication is and how bad homosexuality is. But at least a Christian who's been in church, been discipled, and comes across language that might try to trade language for fornication, homosexuality, they're going to be cognizant of what that language ought to be. In this case, I don't know that folks are. So then when people who want to have this The strategy of legalization or commercialization, part of that in all these industries, part of that is coming up with palatable language. And I'm very much against that. And sometimes I get myself in trouble on a lot of these questions because I don't like to use the palatable language because if it's okay, then it's okay. And let's just say that it's okay. But if even using the word prostitution, you can't use the word prostitution and you have to change it for sex work. I challenge folks to ask yourself why that word makes you so uncomfortable. Because if I I would argue that the reason it makes you uncomfortable is because you know what it is and you know that it's harmful. Mm -hmm. And then I would say, if you call it another name, did it actually change what you're talking about? Right, like that activity is still exactly the same. You're just trying to clean it up so that it doesn't make you so uncomfortable.
1: Right, and and we've already recommended, we talk about in our book, Compassion and Conviction, Politics in the English Language by George mm-hmm. Orwell, when he talks about what words, how words can change, you know, how words can change the perception of something, but really doesn't change the reality and how words can kind of be manipulated to do that. One thing that I love about Jesus, and and, and we'll kind of end on this, as he speaks to the prostitute, he said, your sins, and they are many, are forgiven. When I read that, it's really hard for me to understand, folks, m- many times on the left— who paint Jesus as someone who can, compl- who would almost say that bad things aren't bad? That made us feel better by saying, you know what, it's not actually that bad. Your lifestyle is not actually that bad. No, no, over and over, Jesus is like, no, you are this person. And some people have come to say, well, he was mean for no, no, this is really who you are. No, your situation is really that bad. No, you, you're right. You're, you don't have a husband. You, you're with somebody right now who's not your husband, and you had five, right? Like Jesus lets you know, no, this is your situation. It's not good. But the good news is you're forgiven. Yeah. And and to me, that's the the gospel does not say, I just want you not to be have shame. No, the gospel says, I want you to have life and I want to get you out this situation.
0: Yeah.
1: It does not justify you. It it does not say you're fine with who you are and where you are and everything is all good. No, it says, I want to bring you spiritually and physically out of that situation. And that's the good news. Yeah. I think sometimes we pervert it because we run from the shame. We don't want the shame, but it's not just that the shame is reaction to something. And it's not necessarily good, but it's a reaction to something that needs to be acknowledged. Go ahead, Chris.
0: Yeah, no, I, I think that's 100 percent. And I, I just would urge us, I don't know, to, to never bring down the cross like that. Right. Because it, the measure of the cross is not your sins are OK. It's that your sins are forgiven. And right. the, the thought that Jesus came to the cross and that that is the sacrifice that was necessary would suggest that not that, that our sin is profoundly significant. Like, cause that, that's a profound sacrifice. If you have a clear view of the worth of the Christ as the second person of the Trinity, then that sacrifice is profound and it would have to be that the corresponding sin is equally profound. And so I think, you know, that gospel, this is, you know, if somebody's listening to the podcast, maybe you're new to the end campaign, that's where the gospel is so central to what the end campaign does. Because that's, that's where compassion and conviction have to come in, because it's profound on both sides. Right. It, it's a, the, the sin is profound. The brokenness is profound. And then the sacrifice, the love, the ability to rescue and transform is equally profound. And so we don't have to be afraid to acknowledge and address the profound nature of the sin and the brokenness, and then begin to address it. You also don't have to turn to hatred and vitriol, because there's there really is a solution. So you can model Christ, like you uh, just have been pointing out this whole session. You know, you can model Christ. You can You can... Acknowledge the profound nature of the sin. and, And this issue of prostitution is breaking people and harming society. And that's just what it is. But then we can pursue a loving direction to try to correct this, which, you know, that's why I talked about those policy strategies, because there are ways to get at this that do not just throw people away and push this whole industry, you know, sort of out of sight, out of mind but also doesn't just try to dress it up as something that it's not.
1: Exactly. And and I would say this, one of the problems that church has had also on the other side is we just get stuck on and your sins are many. Yeah. Right. And so we just beat people down over their sins. That's not, that's not what this is saying either. Right. Mm-hmm. We don't just get stuck on your sins are many and pointing out other people's sins are many and not talking about your own sins, which are many. Right. So that that's a message I think for all of us and, this what we're trying to show you guys is just a way to analyze issues from a biblical point of view that are going on in society these are pressing issues how do we work these out can we anticipate from the left or the right they may use language that blinds us to really what's really going on we have to be aware of that in order to be discerning we will be right back from the church politics podcast Thank you. and we are back on the church politics podcast with justin Gibney and the right reverend christopher butler chris according to cnn new jersey democratic senator bob menendez was charged on friday with corruption related to offenses for the second time in 10 years So within 10 years, he's been federally indicted. That's a lot. Uh, Menendez and his wife, Nadine uh, Menendez, are accused of accepting hundreds of thousands of dollars in bribes in exchange for the senator's influence, according to the newly unsealed federal indictment. Now, in a statement, Menendez said he was innocent. but 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 according to the indictment, and this is interesting, searches of Menendez's home... And his safe deposit box turned up nearly five hundred thousand dollars in cash, including envelopes inside jackets emblazoned with Menendez's name. All right. Prosecutors say some of the envelopes had the fingerprints or DNA of one of the business contacts from whom the senator is accused of taking bribes. That's 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 a lot of evidence. I I just don't know a whole lot of people who have five hundred thousand dollars sitting around, have envelopes in their pocket with the DNA of the person that they took the bribe from. But he has an explanation, Chris, and I'll kind of end here in explanation. Menendez said for 30 years, I have withdrawn thousands of dollars in cash from my personal savings account, which I have kept for emergencies. It's a pretty big emergency. And because of the history of my family facing confiscation in Cuba. Bro, first of all, he wasn't even born in Cuba, but he's saying because of, I guess, what Fidel Castro did. And somebody said his parents left before Fidel was there. It's, it's a lot of deep stuff in there, but he basically pulls out the race car to some extent to cover up what he did. And then they even found like gold bars, like big gold Bars of gold in his house. So it's a lot going on here, Chris. You see some even Democratic senators coming out and saying, man, you you need to resign. Now, we know that he is innocent until proven guilty. He pointed that out and it is true. What do you think about a resignation before being proven guilty based on what seems to be clear evidence at the moment?
0: I would love to see a resignation before. The trial. I mean, the evidence seems overwhelming. I suppose that you 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 have the right to to stay in trial and and argue your innocence. And, and hey, I don't know. Maybe there is some some there there, but it, it certainly doesn't seem that way. I suppose that you know Senator Menendez has the right to to stay and try to fight for his just desserts if he really thinks that he's been like framed or something like that. The reason that I strongly advocate a resignation is because the, 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 the defense that he has offered in the court of public opinion already just doesn't seem like the kind of thing that, is, that would hold up. If he were coming up and saying, this is not me, this was planted, I don't know how, all this money got into my house and gold bars and my office and all that stuff. Like if, if, if that was the argument, then I'd be like, we got to let this guy you know, have his day in court, make his case. He's not arguing that he was framed. He's trying to offer an explanation that the reason he has all this cash, gold bars and all that type of stuff is, is, is that his family is Cuban and Cubans keep gold bars. You know what I'm saying? like I'm not Cuban so I, I can't necessarily say 100% I'm I'm not Cuban I, I'm not deep enough or close enough to but it it sounds like his argument is yo I'm Cuban. Yeah. We keep cash and gold bars. So there's nothing to see here, which just doesn't seem like a reasonable defense. I think it's a distraction for the Senate. I think it's a distraction for the government. There's so much and we haven't talked about it here, but there's so much happening in government right now that all of these sideshows, this is just the latest.
1: Yeah. And and, and there's a chance that he thought resigning right now would seem like an admission in the court of public opinion. I think he's lost the court of public opinion right now and should probably be thinking more so about his country. But that's easy for me to say because I'm not facing federal charges of, of this nature. So a lot going on here, man. But, but you know, Democrats are without a choice to kind of come up and say, yeah, you, you need to go because it's a bad reflection on the party as a whole and, and all that other stuff. So we'll see what happens. But it's just sad that after just being indicted within this decade, after just being indicted, you still continue the same behavior. And I would hope, you know, I would hope he's the only senator doing stuff like that. This was foreign affairs stuff. And he was in high positions when it came to foreign affairs. These are bribes. Right. They're saying coming from Egypt. That's serious, serious business. Yeah. And it's nothing is nothing to play with. So we, we've got a corruption problem in government right now that needs to get fixed. I'm not and I don't want to make this more widespread than I know it is. But it's there. In addition to what, you know, uh, I talked about in a civic update this mm-hmm. week. It's something that we have to pay attention to because the United States is not immune from corruption.
0: Yeah. It really feels bad right now. Like There's so many serious things that are going on in our country that our government needs to be trying to address. And we're so much talking about senators with gold bars and, you know, folks can't stay focused in a press conference and is the president able to, like, walk up the stairs and the leading candidate for the presidency on the other side is like under all these hundreds of counts of indictments. I mean, it it just feels like a real change. Significant change is needed in the whole political culture right now in our federal government.
1: Yeah, I, I would agree. I would agree. This, this seems like a crisis moment just with all these Things piling up all all at once. So we'll see what happens. But what I do know, guys, is that Christians need to be in the public square being Christian. We can pray for Senator Menendez. We want obviously justice to be served, but there's got to be, we've got to find ways to incentivize integrity. And this doesn't mean people will be perfect, but this means that we'll go about this in a different way and that there'll be an expectation that if you're involved in things like this, it will not be acceptable. Well, as always, Ann camp, I appreciate you for joining us on this episode. It's always a pleasure to go back and forth with the right reverend. Hope you join us next time in between this. I may shoot y'all some civic updates. So keep an eye on our Instagram for that information. All right, Ann camp, there's a cross that neither political conservatism, nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Camp. I'll let you.